Good afternoon, everyone. This is Sophia Nelson, your host of Eploribus One Podcast, and happy Saturday. Boy, what a week it's been in politics and otherwise. I had the pleasure of being at Grambling State University for convocation this past week. And if you haven't listened to my interview with President Rick Gallo, please do. It will really teach you a lot about the importance and the impact of our HBCUs in America. I was there for Constitution Day. Uh, We had a great time. And I'm really excited about my guest today, uh, Bishop Talbert Swan. If you don't know who he is, you are not awake. If you are on Twitter, he's a different kind of bishop. He's a powerful man of God, but he's also a powerful man of truth. Bishop Swan is the pastor of Spring of Hope Church of God in Christ in Springfield, Massachusetts. He's prelate of the Nova Scotia jurisdiction in the Church of God in Christ. He's a civil rights activist. He's an author, radio talk show host, national chaplain of IOTA, Phi Theta Fraternity, and president of the Greater Springfield NAACP. Bishop, are you there? I'm here. How you doing? Hey, thank you so much for joining us today on Eploribus Podcast. You know, uh, you caught my attention about a year or so ago on social media. And uh, a friend of mine said, you have to check this Bishop Talbert Swan out. He's a different kind of bishop. And I said, okay. So I checked out your tweets and wow, was he right. And uh, I want to allow you uh, just a moment to introduce yourself and talk to the audience a little bit about uh, your ministry, because I think your ministry is a little bit different than most bishops and most pastors. Yes, you're a man of God. Yes, you bring souls to Christ. But you are really, uh, to borrow a Dr. King phrase, a drum major for truth. You are out there every day and you are in the tall weeds. You don't uh, pull punches. You aren't afraid to tackle any subject, whether it's civil rights, whether it's politics, whether it's health care, whether it's social justice, whatever it is, you are truly on the front lines. And I want to just ask you as we start, what makes you that guy that's willing to go there? Because most of your peers uh, that I see simply do not do what you do. What makes you different? Well, when I read scripture and when I study the life of Christ, um, I see social justice ministry intertwined um, with everything that he taught, everything he lived for, everything that he died for. It's hard for me to fathom a Christianity that is divorced from social justice. When he preached his first sermon, when he came out of the wilderness and went into the temple uh, and took the text from the book of Isaiah and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. In that text, he spoke of four demographic groups that he was called to. The poor, the imprisoned, the oppressed, and the sick. And so if we try to follow the pattern of the life of Christ and ignore the plight of the poor, uh, those that are unjustly imprisoned, those that are oppressed, and those that are sick, then we have failed uh, in our mission um, to truly preach the gospel and live an example of the life that he lived. And so th- that, that's my ministry. That's what it's about. That's what it's always been. Um, and that's how I try to live my life and, and, and preach the gospel. Well, I tell you, Bishop, we are in different days. I mean, I guess some would say that 
uh, nothing is new under the sun, as the scripture says, and that we, we everything we do is cyclical, whether it's 100 years ago, 400 years ago, 1,000 years ago. But I feel like there's something different afoot, and I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, I read a story yesterday, I actually tweeted about it this morning, that uh, a young black male high school student was stabbed to death by a white male classmate, and other students... 40 to 50 of them not only watched this happen but they recorded it and they recorded it and some actually tried to upload it to social media authorities eventually got there when some students reported it but the young man was dead and the other young man has been charged and i bring that up because it really impacted me it affected me that there's this callousness this coldness um, with our young people and I think it ties into Bishop and I want to get your thoughts the culture that we have right now with our politics with our lack of morality from our leaders and um, I want to know what you think about that why would our kids be in such a place that they would record a murder online and not think twice about that well the sanctity Um, no longer resonates with several generations. We have become completely desensitized to death, to violence, um, to racial discrimination, and so many other social ills that take place in our society. Um, and so that the fact that we're desensitized to it allows people to stand by and watch heinous acts occur right before their eyes and do not feel compelled to step in and do anything about it. It's, it's the same concept as, as how men could stand there and record uh, a black woman getting beaten by a white man instead of jumping in and assisting and helping her. Uh, they'll stand there and record it and upload the recording like it's no big deal, um, but don't feel that they need to do anything about it. And, you know, when we sit and watch um, murder, death, and killing um, on television, movies, social media, video games, um, blood, guts, and gore over and over and over again, and when we turn on the news and we see it reported over and over again, when we look at the fact that there's been more mass shootings than there has been days of the year, America is desensitized to death and violence. And I think that's what we see depicted when kids can stand, when 40 kids can stand around and watch someone be stabbed to death. And it's more important for them to get it on film than it is to save a life. You know, that's a, uh, it's a sad and stark reality. And I think, you know, as I was talking to the young students, uh, you know, college kids are between the age of 18 on the young side and 21 if they go right out of high school. And, you know, I was talking to them about their devices and how obsessed they are with their devices and they don't know how to talk. They really don't know how to have conversations. And I told them, that's our fault. That's your parents and your grandparents' yeah. fault because we haven't taught you the right way. And I think that's a perfect segue, Bishop, into what I really want to get into in this discussion with you as I have you here is the politics of the day. You know, there are a lot of people that believe, and I was raised in the church to believe, that Christians don't talk about politics. They don't get involved in politics. That's not for us. And I disagree with that. And I first want to get your thoughts on whether or not you think Christians should be engaged in the politics of the day and the 
and and engaged in um, trying to have influence in politics uh, of the day or not? What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I think no one does politics um, as consistently or as well as church folk. Um, <laughs> the, the, the reality is uh, there are very few churches, whether they be part of a denomination or independent churches, that are not steeped in church politics. Church folk can teach people in the secular world a thing or two about how to Amen. do politics. Se- <laughs> secondly, I, I teach people that you are not officially born until a politician signs your birth certificate. And you are not officially dead until a politician signs your death certificate. Wow. And politicians influence everything that happens in your life between birth and death. That's and, good. and so the reality is uh, it would be irresponsible for people of faith to ignore politics as though it does not exist uh, and to not be involved and not to have the voice of the church or the voice of the faith community resonate in the public sphere. The reality is, uh, for those of us that are Christian, Christ uh, interjected himself into the politics of his day with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those that were in the Roman government, those that were involved in the um, political uh, things that were going on in his day, he had something to say about it. And so I, I think it's a very poor pastor, a very poor, a very poor faith leader who comes from the vantage point that our job is just to sit within the confines uh, of our faith community and pray, uh, but never speak to the issues of the day. Yeah, you and I agree on that, which brings me to really an issue that has had quite a bit of attention from the media since President Trump took office, and that is the role of white evangelicals or Southern Baptists, whatever sect you want to point to, who were very involved, ironically, in helping to elect as President Donald Trump a man who is not uh, a man of known faith, a man who's not a churchgoer, a man who was not like someone like George W. Bush that we all knew came in as a born-again Christian. You know, he talked about how his faith changed his life at 40 when he was drinking too much. And, you know, he became born again and very tied into Texas evangelicals, etc. Or even a Barack Obama who, uh, upon, you know, meeting and marrying Michelle Obama and, and joining the church under Jeremiah Wright. And, of course, that was controversial. So almost all of our presidents, Bill Clinton, we can go back through and through, all the way back to John F. Kennedy and his Catholicism, these were men who had a tie to the faith community. Donald Trump yeah. did not. And what I find fascinating is, uh, I'm old enough to remember, and I know you are too, Bishop, the, the days when the Christian Coalition and Jerry Falwell Sr. and, and you know, all these pastors and preachers and Billy Graham had a lot of influence, particularly in the Republican Party in politics, and they were very moralistic, if you will. They were the family values party. The, the, the topic on the table today that I know we all want to talk about is what happened to Christian evangelicals and how in the world did they get tied up with President Trump? I mean, any objective observer, and, and for folks who listen to me who love Donald Trump, stick with me for a minute here. If you're just objective, you have to agree that President Trump was not a man who came in 
with a big faith background, a big, you know, belief system. He, he was very honest about that. You know, his famous two Corinthians comment uh, was the butt of a lot of jokes. Um, I've not seen him go to church once since he's been president. If I've missed that, I'm sorry, but I haven't seen it. And I'm just wondering, folks out there, how how do you square that, Bishop? What's what's really going on here? Let's try to dissect how people like Jensen Franklin and James Robeson and, you know, uh, Bishop Harry uh, Jackson, and I can keep going on and on and on, even Martin Luther King's niece, uh, how do these people get tied up with Donald Trump? Well, you you, you have to look at the reality of um, the uh, the white evangelical movement. Um, In addition to their stated um, moral stances, we also have to look at some other things that have shaped uh, that movement and their ideology. And, and so th- it seems surprising that those that talk about family values and morality would take a man like Donald Trump, mm-hmm. whose entire life has been lived um, in a way that is completely antithetical to their stated faith. Uh, mm-hmm. When you look at his horrendous, racist, xenophobic, misogynistic language and his personal lifestyle, um, Republicans and white evangelicals are yet with him because the party of Donald Trump, the party that supported him, 81% of evangelicals that voted for him, is the product of several wow. political movements that have cons- really consolidated a core set of principles that when you get down to the nitty gritty and strip away uh, all of the faith language, um, it really hinges on a core focus, mostly of race, but also guns, abortion, gay rights, um, those type of things. Mm -hmm. And so um, um, you've got to go back, look, you mentioned Jerry Falwell. If you go back to the 70s with Falwell and the formation of the moral majority mm-hmm. uh, or even to Anita Bryant's crusades. Mm-hmm. Um, you have these individuals in these organizations like Oral Roberts, Tammy and Jim Baker, Pat yep. Robertson, the 700 Club. They all formed in reaction to Roe v. Wade and abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were also organizations that were opposed to gay rights um, and grew in the face of a perception that Christianity was somehow under attack and God was being pushed out of schools and and the core foundation of all of this was white supremacy, the superiority uh, of white folks and a whitenized Christianity uh, that pushed a blonde haired, blue eyed white Jesus uh, and a traditional American value of the white family. And so all of that comes first. Uh, And so at the end of the day, Donald Trump embodies all of that. Um, The pushback against um, the rise in the number of brown and black immigrants that are coming into the country, Um, the the, the fight to to, um, stem the tide of illegal guns, et cetera. Uh, And so they really think that white society and white supremacy as they know it and, and are comfortable with it, is under attack and they want someone in the White House um, that supports those values, not necessarily the 
family values, not necessarily the values of thou shall not commit adultery or you should have one wife or you should live mm -hmm. your life uh, in a moral mm -hmm. way in compliance with the teachings of Christ. But there are other things that are more important to them. And so I often say um, that white evangelicalism is nothing but white supremacy and drag. Now let's stop there because you've said a lot and you've said a lot that as I watch you every day on Twitter, you are battling every day with people when you say these things, uh, they are certainly rooted from your perspective and from the perspective of many in a whole lot of truth and fact and reality, but from the perspective of those who might consider themselves on the receiving end, they take great offense. I see the comments that are made and people tell you, you're not a real bishop talking like this. You know, you get uh, white women who come on to your feed and try to correct and chastise you. I've seen uh, the supremacists, the nationalists. I've seen folks in the black community take exception uh, to the way you call things out. So I want to unpack this a little bit because I think, as I've said to my listeners, this podcast is about America. Everything about America, from the music, from the culture, to our sports, to the way we engage and interact, to everything you can think about, our politics, our faith. That's what America embodies. And if we're going to heal, folks, we're going to have to have real courageous conversations. And so, Bishop, one of the things I appreciate about you, I don't have to always agree with everything you say, but I appreciate that you're bold enough to say it, that you're bold enough to stand on it and say, I will debate you on this and let's have the debate. Let's not be afraid to deal with it. And I want you to unpack a little bit again for our white listeners, for the, the many white people who listen to my podcast. I want you to unpack pack for them this notion of how uh, if we go back to slavery and we go back to how faith was used right by the slave owners to subjugate those they owned how does that tie into what we see today and what you just broke down which is that there's a fundamental misapplication of faith number one and and, and you know what scriptures say about uh, one race being superior to the other or whatever it have you and kind of just give people a little bit of a history lesson so they can unpack the offense that they feel and actually hear what you're saying. Well, you know, the 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 Christian religion as taught to our foreparents, um, I, I use the term whitenized, was a whitenized form of Christianity that taught um, black folks, first of all, that they were inferior to whites. It was a bastardization of scripture where someone took a text of when uh, Noah uh, fell asleep drunk in his vineyard um, and his son, um, the ham, came into the vineyard and failed to cover him up. And when Noah found out what happened, he said, curse be Canaan, which was the son right. uh, of ham. And people took that, misapplied it, and said that ham was cursed. Therefore, Black folks are Hamitic people, descendants of Ham. Therefore, black folks are cursed according to wow. the Bible, according wow. to That's scripture. Deep. The, the, deep. the curse of Ham has long been a linchpin of white supremacist Christianity yes. to justify the subjugation and the oppression of black people. Therefore, they could justify slavery. They could justify Jim Crow. 
They could justify opposing uh, mixed marriages. They could justify any and everything that happened to black people because God willed it to be so. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, that's what they taught black folks. They used to use black preachers on the plantation. Nat Turner was one of yes. them. Uh, they would use him to go from plantation to plantation to teach other slaves to be subject to their master, to be compliant, uh, to be passive, until one day he had a revelation uh, that told him that God did not want them to live like this. And you know the famous uprising uh, of Nat Turner. And Bishop, pause there for a moment, folks. Yeah. If you don't know what Bishop is talking about, you need to watch The Birth of a Nation, the remake that was done uh, just a couple of years ago. It was it it did not do well at the box office, which does not surprise me, much like movies like Rosewood and other films that truly expose the underbelly of the horrendousness and the brutality of slavery and enslavement, or even in the Jim Crow era. But if you don't know about Nat Turner and you're not, again, aware, again, if you're white, you were probably taught one thing about Nat Turner. If you were black, you were taught another. And uh, I think what Bishop is saying is very important that you don't miss, that you actually take the time to read for yourself and understand about the hostile, naked, brutal uh, aggression that was leveled against enslaved people. Go ahead, Bishop, finish your thought out. Yeah, and so uh, they would, they would, cherry pick scripture and they would instead of exegeting scripture they would they would eisegete text and read into the text and they would say slaves be obedient to your master mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and they would take selected scripture um, to teach black people um, that they needed to be subject to white folks they needed to be passive uh, and they did not need to fight for their liberation but somehow some way our foreparents um, read into the scripture differently. They and 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 they saw the exodus uh, of the Hebrews. They took the stories of um, the Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace and the Israelites coming out of slavery, uh, and they juxtaposed that against their situation and came to a different understanding that God did not want them to be enslaved and oppressed, mm -hmm. and He wanted them to be free. And so they freed their mind from an oppressive religion. Mm -hmm. And they came up with a different hermeneutic uh, in terms of what God wanted for them. But yet and still, white Christians have held on to that slaveholder uh, mentality. And even today, uh, many will tell me, you're supposed to be a man of God. You're supposed to preach love. Why are you preaching hate? And my question is, how is preaching the, the freedom of my people preaching against injustice and white supremacy and anti-black bigotry, how is that preaching hate? Preaching hate to those who oppress is preaching freedom to those that are oppressed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's and that's the reality of it. Yeah, let me let me pause there for a moment again, because folks, again, my my goal on this podcast is always to unpack. Like our most popular podcast to date has been the 1619 Project podcast. And that, of course, caused controversy, which to me is I'm scratching my head like how in the entire hell, forgive me, conservatives, but how in the hell can you celebrate the Constitution? And I said this to the kids at Grambling and all of its splendor. And yes, we can celebrate that. But then you likewise got to deal with the fact that that same Constitution 
uh, identified people like myself and Bishop Swan as three-fifths of a person. Mm. And that we were identified as not even a whole human being for the voting rights and the taxing rights of the privileged white men who own black people. And, and when we can begin to have that conversation and deal with what you're saying, Bishop, and I know it's hard to hear. I know it's hard because when, when you don't experience oppression, when you don't experience racism, when you don't experience um, dehumanization and microaggressions and macroaggressions, the way that black people do every day, Bishop, in America, I, I look at some of these comments that you get, that I get, that many of us get, and I think the white people who send them are well-meaning. I think they truly are clueless. And can you speak to that a moment? How do we reach our white brothers and sisters when they haven't been taught the truth? I mean, so how do we help them when they really haven't been taught the truth either about the real realities of this country starting in 1619? Yeah, I think, I think um, that is one of our most difficult tasks because, first of all, people do not want to have those hard conversations and they don't want to have those mm. conversations um, that brush up against what they have traditionally been taught what they have traditionally believed and it's very hard to get people to stretch beyond their comfort zones uh, and so when you try to teach history from uh, the vantage point of the oppressed it is often rejected from those who have been privileged uh, there's an old saying that um, when history is taught uh, from the vantage point of the lion, it's much different than what's taught from the hunter. Uh, and so our white yeah. brothers and sisters, well. <laughs> um, you know, they kind of look at America um, in, in a glowing fashion as this great sure. nation. Sure. Um, and, you know, and that slavery and oppression of black folks was just a small little hiccup, a small little mistake. And it's something that we ought to get over. And they really don't see or can't see the long lasting effects of the oppression of black people that still affect our people even unto sure. this day. Sure. Uh, and so there's a proclivity to immediately become defensive and reject any notion that I or my parents or my grandparents or my people could possibly be racist, could possibly um, be doing or saying something that is oppressive to you and you're just being overly sensitive. And so I think it's, it's, it's to convince them to just stop for a moment, listen, and try to put yourself in the shoes of other people so that you can understand, you know, the saying that until you walk a mile in mm -hmm. my shoes, you really don't understand, mm -hmm. you know, my life or my plight. And we don't want to put ourselves in other folks' yeah, shoes. And so. Right. Uh, what happens is um, uh, the Republican Party, white evangelicals thrive off of fear, resentment, and racism, which are the psychological forces that really have forged this, this Trump evangelical coalition that has brought together, you know, evangelicals and white supremacists alike. And it's not a politics or a party about moving an agenda. It's really based on halting the other side yeah. from securing their agenda. Yeah. It, it, it's it, also it, fear. There's a lot of fear. A lot of fear. And yeah. Let's just talk for a moment. We, you know, we got a few minutes left here, and you and I could go forever. But I, 
I want you to talk to me about fear from a pastoral uh, platform for a moment. I, I want you to step into your bishop robes and your bishop cloth and your bishop heart that you wear. I know every moment of every day, but just talk to us for a moment, Bishop, about everything you've said is it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack and it's powerful. And those of us, again, who live it and who have studied African-American history in college or 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 had grandparents who marched in the civil rights movement or were the first in World War One or World War Two or back to the Civil War, whatever it was, many of us have that type of history in our families. And so we are painfully aware of uh, all the things you just spoke of, but talk to us for a moment as a people, as a pastor, about what fear does and what fear is doing to this country right now. Because, Bishop, I'm 51 years old and I've never seen anything like what I've seen in these last two years, in particular the last year, the lawlessness, the 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 lack of respect, the open and hostile naked racism, the things that come out of the president of the United States mouth and people look the other way or they applaud it. Children in cages, Bishop, uh, children not being able, if they're young ladies with their cycles, they won't even give them sanitary products. I mean, what happened to America? What is this, what's this fear that's gripped us? And Bishop, what's the way out? My, my grandmother told us years ago, um, you don't have to worry about the, the bully, uh, you know, who, who feels like they're tough um, and is braggadocious about what they can do to you. Said the person that you really need to be concerned about is the person that's afraid of you. Mm. Because the person that's afraid of you is the person that will do the most damage to you. Uh, and so people naturally fear change. They fear uh, moving out of their comfort zone. And the reality is that America is getting browner and browner. Uh, and by the year 2030, social scientists have said uh, that black and brown people will outnumber white people in this nation. Yep. And if that is so, there are so many white folks that are fearing coming out of their comfort zone of being in a nation that is predominantly white um, um, where they are the majority uh, where they vote in the majority where they control uh, just about every industry and so the browning of America the the influx of black and brown immigrants the the higher birth rates of African Americans and Latinos in this nation makes them fear that they are losing their grip on a nation that they have controlled for so long. That's what the whole mantra of make America great again is about. But it's Bishop, really pause make there America- for a moment. Hold your thought, hold your thought. Let me, let me throw some facts in there. Folks, look this up. I'm not making this up. Look at the wealth gap in America. Look at wealth equity in America. Look at who controls. 90% of the wealth in America is owned by, what, 2% of the population? Yeah. And we know what that population looks like. It's white and it's male. Look at the Forbes, you know, 100. Look at the Forbes 500. And look, you know, you have Oprah in there. You might get a Magic Johnson in there and they're going to be in the millions. They're not in the billions. Oprah's going to be in the billion dollar club. You're going to have a couple black folks in the billion dollar club. But that's far and few in between, Bishop. So again, this fear is not really based it's on a rationality. Fault. 
Yeah, it's it's a false fear. But but that's what that's what politicians like Trump and others have been able to use to keep themselves in power is to stoke irrational fears among the rank and file white folks in this nation that um, immigrants are coming to take over America. Black folks are taking over your jobs. Uh, 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 gangs of black and brown folks are going to rape your daughters and they're going to they're going to uh, bring crime to your neighborhood. Uh, these irrational type of fears uh, have galvanized a racist underbelly in America that uh, is acting in a more covert way today than they have in the last 50 years in our nation. And so all over, we see all of these racist, I mean, uh, hate crimes are up 283%. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got all of this stuff going the on. The FBI has declared it a, a, a national security threat, as well as one of the other agencies just finally signed off as well. As one of the intel agencies said, this is a very serious threat to the homeland, this white nationalist, white supremacist movement. It's not just a danger, Bishop, to people like you and me who are black, brown. It's a danger to white people. Absolutely. And and, 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 and meanwhile, we've got Congress having hearings uh, and black folks like Candace Owens saying white nationalism and white supremacy is not a problem oh, that's uh, in, in America. Uh, but, but the reality, these irrational fears are being stoked People are acting on these fears. People are voting in accordance with these fears. Um, and it's being used as a political tool to ensure uh, that white supremacy holds its place uh, in American society and in American politics. Well, I tell you um, this. I am concerned because, as you rightly mentioned, politicians, uh, particularly kind, the kind that have no moral compass and no values, will do anything to stay in power and to have power. And uh, I'm not going to get on a Donald Trump rant or whatever. That's not what this podcast is about. I think that we've had a a discussion about some things that are more important than Donald Trump, because at the end of the day, Trump is either going to leave office at the end of 2020 in 2021 or is going to leave in 2024. He's a symptom of a greater problem. Absolutely. And so for me, I really appreciate that we're unpacking this and we're going to have you on more and you and I are going to have a series of conversations. I know we've talked about doing some things together because I think that my, my brand of politics and my experience in politics and your experience as a man of God and a man of faith, as well as NAACP chairman and all the things that you do and have done, I think that we need to have these kind of conversations more. And I'm going to invite some white guests on too, men and women of goodwill who get it that we can talk to, because I really think Bishop that uh, this fear has me concerned. Look at what happened in Charlottesville. A young woman ended up dead. A lot of people hurt or wounded. Look at what happened at the Walmart in El Paso. Look at what happened in Dayton. Look at what's happening. And almost always they're white male shooters. Uh, almost always without exception. So I'm going to give you the last word to kind of wrap this for us. And of course, you know, for those who've been listening, I know that these are tough conversations where we're talking about race and we're talking about demographics and we're talking about America's sordid racial past. But Bishop, why don't you give us the last word, just kind of wrap us on why it's important that we read the 1619 Project. Why is it important that black people are beginning to tell the stories of their ancestors and tell their stories why does that matter at this moment in time 
I think throughout history, you'll find that every time there has been progress for black people uh, and for non-white folks, it has always been met with white backlash. Uh, when, when blacks were trying to free themselves and slave uprisings came up, it was met with backlash. Uh, in 2013, uh, you'll remember um, over 35 Republican attorney generals mm -hmm. from across the nation uh, filed a lawsuit. The Supreme Court uh, neutered Section 4 of the, of the Voting Rights Act, which basically um, um, took away the enforcement of Section 5. And so here we are six years later with an unenforceable Voting Rights Act uh, backlash. Mm -hmm. Barack Obama came into office and stayed for two terms. And the backlash was from that was the election of an open white supremacist as president of the United States. Every time there's progress, there's backlash. And mm -hmm. we've got to get to a point in America where the progress of oppressed people does not cause fear in people who don't look like them mm -hmm. uh, to the point where they feel like they have to rise up against that progress. I think we all should be able to live in a nation where we're all treated equally. Uh, my white brothers and sisters love quoting Dr. King, the sanitized version, um, uh, about all of us being treated equally. But it seems as though whenever we get to a point of trying to come flush with them in terms of equality, uh, that we get this backlash that continues to happen over and over and over again. And I hope that uh, in the future, America does much better than what we've seen over the past decade. Bishop, what would you say to our fellow white citizens who are living in Appalachia, in the Mississippi Delta, in the middle of the country, their farms gone under due to tariffs and everything, and they're hurting, the jobs have left, the, 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 the people that were in the coal mines in Pennsylvania, Kentucky, et cetera. Those are really the people I feel like um, are the ones that get played in this political yeah. process, moved around like pawns. What would you say to them? Because some of them listen to me as well. Uh, what would you say to them about, you know, how can they be optimistic about this, this different America without having to feel the fear I mean, I don't know. Speak to them for a moment. Talk to them. I would tell I would tell them to vote in their best interest, to act in your best interest. Do not act in accordance with those who stoke fears in you based on uh, racialized fear tactics. Mm -hmm. uh, the reality is um, these tariffs are hurting that population yet that population is supporting the yeah, man yeah. who is doing that's real uh, what what's hurting them yeah uh, and their and their support for him is not based upon uh an agreement with his policies um regarding their livelihood but it's in agreement with their with his policies regarding um race wow. and and we've got to get beyond race in this nation and act in accordance to what's best for the American people. And that's what I would hope for my white brothers and sisters in Appalachia and other places, uh, that they would stop voting against their best interests just so that they can um, shore up white supremacy in this nation.
Yeah, and I think that uh, as one of my white friends who's been a mentor for 30 years said to me, a white male, he said, you know, Sophia, you and I sit here and we have these conversations, but you and I are both well-educated. We have advanced degrees. We live in the richest county in America, and we can sit over our wine and sip our tea and have these great intellectual discussions, and we can agree. He's like, but when you're trying to put food on the table, when you're struggling, when you're scrapping, he said somebody comes along and tells you, well, it's that guy's fault why you're not doing well. He said, yeah, people on that level and God knows we're not speaking down to those people. But you with me, Bishop, on that? It's 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 they know how to poke the bear, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you tell them black and brown people are taking your jobs, um, you know, that 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 the reason why um, you're not succeeding uh, is because of this particular demographic. Uh, it sucks them in because everybody wants to have a scapegoat. Everybody wants to have yep. somebody to point yep. the finger at and to blame for their condition, kind of what they accuse black folks of all the time. Um, and so they have mastered the art of stoking fears in those populations uh, and getting them uh, to vote and to support people who could care less about them. Because at the end of the day, um, those of the Trump ilk and the McConnell ilk and so many uh, of their others, and although they don't do what's in the best interest of black folks, they don't do what's in the best interest of poor white folks. There either. you have it. There you have it. And that goes back to Robert Kennedy and it goes back to Johnson's war on poverty. And again, you know, I'm a Republican moderate woman my entire life. Jack Kemp was my mentor, Christine Todd Whitman. I was in a Republican party that had some damn sense that had some people that people could respect. Margaret Chase Smith, one of my, mo the women I admire most that ever walked this earth, you know, stood up against McCarthyism, stood up, had the declaration of conscience. There were good Republicans. Ed Brooke out of Massachusetts. We had plenty. They're gone yeah, now. First black senator. Yeah, they're, they're gone. And, and that's sad because I think you and I can both agree, Bishop, that we need a strong two-party system not just one party, uh, we need two parties that function and operate and legislate and can conversate. It's not a word. But um, Bishop, I thank you so much. I've been dying to get you on, as you know. We finally made it. Yes, but we're gonna do more. And ladies and gentlemen, again, I, I thank you because a lot of you are gonna listen to this because Bishop Talbert Swan's on and I, I imagine your social media and mine is going to be very busy. But I encourage you to listen to this, listen to it again. And tweet your questions. Don't attack. Don't get angry. Resist that temptation. Listen and listen again and hear what Bishop has said. Go fact check for yourself. Read a couple books. Understand history. Read through the 1619 Project. Don't be offended, my fellow Americans who are white, because of the fact that slavery happened in 1619 and it started here on the shores of Virginia. You can't get mad about what happened. I mean, I think sometimes, Bishop, I just want to rip my hair out. I'm like, come on, y'all. We can do better than this. So, Bishop, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to have you back. I look forward to being on your show some point, coming up to see you guys in Massachusetts. Absolutely. And uh, you're a good man. Keep up the good fight. I love your brand, The Fiery Faith. I love it. Keep it up. Thank you, Bishop. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.